You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Podcast with Dante Belmonte, here to help you start or continue your journey in real estate. Each episode, we bring you a different expert real estate investor who will share the secrets to their success so you can learn and benefit from their experience. Let's jump right into it. Happy Thursday, guys. Thanks for stopping into the podcast. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today, we have Kyle Marcotte on the show. Kyle is a 21-year-old real estate syndicator with 119 units under his belt. We get to sit down with Kyle today and figure out how he actually did that in a little bit less than a year. If you guys are enjoying the show, please go over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. It really helps the show. Hope you guys enjoy the show today. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is a buddy of mine, Kyle Marcotte. Uh, Kyle is a 21-year-old real estate investor and syndicator. He's currently got $5.5 million of real estate underneath his belt, which is pretty damn impressive for his age. So I think that's sweet. So Kyle, my man, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, I'm Kyle. Thank you for having me on, by the way. Um, really a privilege to be on the show. So uh, where do you want me to start? Just to, all the way back to the beginning or how far back do you want me to go as far as the story? Let's uh, start with where you were at when you were about 19, 20 years old and what was going through your head at the time. Yeah, perfect. So to place me there at around 19 or 20, I was in college at UC Davis. So I had a Division One soccer scholarship to play um, out at UC Davis, and I was studying neuroscience. But there was just something in me that was telling me, you know, I don't own any of my time. I don't have any free time here. I'm kind of beholden to my coach and to my teachers. And I don't really control my life. So even though that's considered successful to a lot of people, to me it just was – you know, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to write off like, yeah, it was very difficult for me to get there and I worked hard, but the thing was like, it wasn't really what I wanted. It wasn't making me happy. And I realized it kind of matters more how I feel internally than it does about how other people perceive me externally. So I started to kind of reconfigure my life. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad at like the perfect time. I'm like turning 20, thinking about the world in a completely different way now. Yeah. I'm realizing that it's not all it's cracked up to be and uh, read that book. And I'm like, wow, I don't have to trade my time for money. There's a different thing I can do here that rich people are doing that most people don't know about. Okay, let me really dig into this. Found uh, real estate, tried the single the single family wholesaling thing, realized again, had a job, found right. multifamily, dug into that. Um, and then I dropped out of school in January of uh, 2019. And in June of 2019, I did my first deal, 107 units in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And it was a great deal, and I was, was, you know, it was a huge thing. But that six-month stretch there, uh, in between those two dates, was uh, was probably one of the most stressful times uh, of my life. But it taught me, you know, a tremendous amount of lessons. Right. So, talk to us about. I mean, you've got people on here who are thinking just like you. They've read Rich Dad Poor Dad, or they don't want to, you know, trade their time, so to speak, and they don't want to work a job. They want to be more passive or build wealth in real estate. What gave you the courage to go out there and drop out of a full scholarship for a division one school to basically no job and just learning and, and working towards this? What gave you the courage to do that? Yeah. So I almost like it, this is an interesting one. Cause a lot of people ask me that and I, and I think about it and like a lot of people, they ask me, how did you get the impetus to do that? And then also how did you know what you wanted so clearly? And both of those, I have a different answer where it's like, I didn't really know what I wanted. I just knew what I didn't want really, really badly. And I think it was, is kind of courage, but also kind of like, just like, I just really, I was really just could not live like that. It was almost like I was moving away from that. Um, I knew that no matter what I did, no matter how much money I made as a doctor, no matter how many, you know, goals I scored as a division one athlete or whatever, none of it was going to make me happy. And I really was just not happy. So I figured, 
I, you know, I have to do something. And that kind of led me out of desperation to move forward. I wish that I could say I had this like beautifully visualized plan and that I knew exactly what I wanted and I had all right. this courage and I developed and I, you know, no, it was just like, I was like scrambling to get away from something that I really disliked and uh, just trying to make it happen. So in a sense, you kind of like burned the boats, like you, you left, you couldn't go back. And the only way you could move was forward at this point. And you really forced yourself to, um, something with that method. I want people to think about because a lot of people on here are like, Oh, well, I have a W2 job. I'm scared to leave it because I'm making that jump. Well, sometimes you have to, so that way you have no other option to move forward. Like it sounds like you had yourself, um, talk to us about the first deal, how you got started, how it all broke down. I mean, take some time to real go into detail on it. Yeah, of course. And before I do, I just want to say like a little disclaimer as far as like, you know, burning the boats, it's definitely something that works, right? But I, if you have to be prepared for the consequences that are associated with that decision. Like for me, there was a point where I went to Safeway with my roommate uh, towards the end of this before the deal would close and I had received any things for it and I couldn't pay for my groceries. Um, so uh -huh. I'm in a position where, you know, I'm in line for things and my, my credit cards maxed out and getting declined and my roommate behind me in line has to pay for my stuff. Um, and that's a, you know, you have to be ready for that kind of a situation and what that does to you emotionally. So if you're going to burn the boats, like you got to know the price that you're going to have to pay. Um, and you, right. if you're okay with that, then good, don't do it. But if you're, you don't think you have the, uh, the, you know, the gall for that, then maybe, you know, be a little bit more conservative, but it was just something where I had no other option, but for the first deal on a brighter note, um, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the brighter note, the 107 unit deal in Louisville, it, it was fantastic because I had started to raise money out in the Sacramento area by just becoming an expert at my local meetup. You know, at first I networked with the host. I think that's a strategy that people don't talk about enough is when you go to a meetup, you have a really low likelihood of, of networking with people who are members that are going to be able to benefit your business. So you kind of want to focus your efforts on the host because he's probably the most qualified person there. And if you can build a relationship with him and start to get a speaking role at the meetup, which is what I did over time. And I basically did it by just slowly adding value over time. I built the relationship with him. And then I asked like, Hey, can I help you with check in, sign in, you know, cleaning up afterwards, scheduling people that are want to speak at your thing, you know, helping you out with their website, that kind of stuff. And after, you know, six to eight weeks of doing that, then I asked him, Hey, can I speak on stage for 15 minutes, 20 minutes? And that turned into a regular role. Um, we talked about why multifamily and all this other stuff. And it took me from being a 20 year old cute kid to a, to an expert pretty quickly. And from there, I just started to get meetings every week at the meetup after people would say, Hey, I would love to meet with you for coffee, talk about this multifamily thing. And then, you know, I started to raise money that way. And so I knew I needed to find a boots on the ground partner with a deal because I knew I had built this capital list. And then I basically just met a guy named Eli and he brought me that deal. I raised all the capital and uh, yeah, we made it happen. So with this meetup, how many people would you say were there uh, every time you guys went and you, you spoke and you stood up front? I'd say somewhere around 20, 20 people okay. would probably be a fair estimate, somewhere between 20 and then on the high days, like 50. Wow. So that, that's a pretty significant size group. Cause I'd say most people, their meetup ranges from maybe 10 to 20, depending on the city size. Now, how many of those people in there did you know were passive investors or future limited partners, so to speak? Um, with absolute certainty, like zero, I, I never really knew uh, what was going to happen at the meetup. A lot of times you'd get a crowd that was uh, a bunch of new people starting out in like wholesaling and flipping and stuff like that. And you don't really know where they lie, but there's the occasional like, you know, you get lucky when you just keep doing stuff over and over and you put the work in. And I ended up meeting a guy named Lalo. <clears throat> he was a VP at a sales company and he had done quite well for himself, frugal guy. And, uh, you know, he had 
a decent amount of money saved and it wasn't really him all his money but he was introducing me to other people that he had met because i you know i had spoken in front of him i showed him my expertise and what i understood and he basically was like hey dude I, I'll, I'll give you a shot because if you mess this up for 10 years straight you're still 30 and uh and then you'll right. probably be a very good investor at that point so i'll pay <laughs> for your education man and i was like love that mindset let's let's give it a whirl and basically right. you know he introduced me to some friends and i had to sell them as well and they were like you know if lalo gives you the blessing then then you're probably you know, worth your salt. Let's, let's give it a shot. And, you know, so far we've, you know, we've, we've met our promise and, and, you know, you, you just kind of got to take that leap of faith. And I was just blessed that someone was willing to, to see that in me. So really one investor, one passive investor for the most part really made or, or made the deal for you because they brought in so many other investors. So he played a huge role for you. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. I, w- I would not undersell the role that Lalo had and played in my life as a mentor and also just is introducing me to people like, but it really is what happens when you take a risk on yourself and you put yourself out there and you do hard things like speaking in public, which, you know, scares the heck out of me. And I'm happy to keep going on podcasts and I've gotten a lot better at it. But at first, man, I was, you know, like going to vomit backstage before I went out kind of thing. Right, and, right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, putting yourself in those situations, the universe or God, whatever you want to call it, seems to reward you when you when you step outside of your comfort zone and you really jump off the cliff. So, but yeah, I mean, only it only takes one person to change your life. And I want to leave people with that as the key takeaway there is like, you put yourself out there and, and really it's only one person. We focus on like, oh, I got to raise a million dollars. But it's like, no, if you if you find one person and that leads to another person, then you got five people and all of a sudden you have a million dollars. So think about the right. five people, not the million dollars. And this Lalo character, if I pronounced that right, uh, was did you meet him at the meetups or where did you meet this gentleman? Yeah, so I met him at the meetups. He saw me speak one day and he was like, dang, you're 20 and you know this much about real estate. Um, I have some money. I'd love to sit down and talk to you. And then I have... Uh, I've, I've made like a pitch deck because I had, I, you know, I took so many meetings um, right. so that I've, I've kind of refined this pitch deck down to a, a science where, you know, I was studying neuroscience in school and I did apply some of that to the pitch deck where when you first meet an individual, you're perceiving them in a part of your brain called the amygdala, which is typically like a fear center and a survival center. It's the older part of our brain because we're animals, right? So my first perception of you is like, is this person going to harm me in any physical way? Is there going to be physical ramifications for us getting in an altercation? And so you can't accept numbers when you're in that space. When the when your brain is you know in the amygdala, you're not going to be able to be like, oh, my IRR, my IRR is what? I'm making how much money on my... Like, no, you right, can't start right, the yeah. meeting with like, hey, like a lot of people will start their investor meetings with, oh, I'm going to double your money in five years. Well, it's oh, like... Oh, it's selling yourself. The, yeah, you got to sell the emotion because the prefrontal cortex is activated later in the conversation and that's where the numbers take place. That's your newer brain and your older brain is the beginning, the whole first chunk of the conversation. So you have to, you know, get someone, build rapport, tell them about yourself, tell them about multifamily as a beneficial vehicle and just guide them into it. When you see them start to relax and their demeanor change, then you can start talking about metrics, data and uh, returns, but definitely don't start with that. And I started to build the whole pitch deck around that. So the whole thing's in that order. And then each section's also in that same concept. So um, that's, that's been really helpful. And I typically give that out to people for free. So I'm, I'm willing to do the same thing for your listeners as well. Yeah. Awesome. We'll uh, definitely grab some of that towards the end. So something again, I want to just point out is this one individual is someone you met from a meetup. I can't tell you how many times that different meetups I've gone to, I've met one individual who's totally changed my investing career for, for, for the better, you know, uh, first one I ever met was commercial lender who I did my first commercial loan with. Second one was also another commercial lender who also had a hard money lending program that I was able to get my foot in the door for a deal I would have never been able to do with my own funds. You know, so it's it's very important those meetups. I can't stress enough. And I mean, if people have listened to episodes before, how important going to those meetups are. And Kyle, I'm sure you can 
you know, you could preach that all day because of going to those meetups, you've been able to have the success you've had. Correct. You know? Yeah, pretty much. I, I totally agree with you. It's just one person away. Right. So this 107 unit, correct? Mm-hmm. Let's uh, dissect that a little bit more. So let's start with how'd you find the deal? I mean, you're in Sacramento, correct? And yeah. that was in Lou. Where was that? Yeah, Louisville or Louisville, if you're a local. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how'd you find that? I mean, that's not next to each other. Those aren't cities yeah. aren't right next to each other. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I went and looked for a boots on the ground partner in, in Louisville specifically. Um, and also I was looking at some of the cities in Tennessee. A lot of the brokers will work Nashville, Chattanooga, and then also up to Louisville. So they'll work that kind of that corridor. And so we would get deals in those three cities. And I was looking there because of the stability through 2008 with growth um, mm-hmm. and with you know vacancy as well. So I, I'm thinking, you know, I just don't want the market to you know work against me. So I wasn't looking for a volatile market. I was looking for something that was rather linear because for my first deal and my first uh, you know, kind of shot at this with other people's money. I wanted to make sure that at least my, you know, all the external variables were going to be somewhat um, stable rather than some sort of trying to play like an upswing or a huge value <laughs> add. I didn't, I didn't see that as being a very good idea for the first time ever doing it. Um, right. So I, I went for a more linear market in Louisville and we found it through a, a broker who we were actually looking, he was a Nashville center broker and he had sent Eli the deal and we looked over it and and there was just a lot of obvious value add that was not like heavy lifting. Like for example, we thought it was 106 units until we actually started inspection. We found a down unit, just full of storage, but you know, plumbed and could easily be turned into a unit. Took the right. storage out, got a little shed. Okay, yeah, so after we added the extra unit um, of value, just from the rent there, then we were able to actually see that the manager was being well overpaid because he was a family member that they were trying to you know, help out. So he was making $90,000 a year as a property wow. manager. And uh, yeah, and, and the Midwest managers in Louisville, they're typically making around 35 grand to 45 grand on the high end. So to see 90 grand going to one individual for salary was something we knew we could cut day one. And that's again, huge off the NOI as well. So uh, those were just two glaring improvements. And we were like, okay, I think we can make this happen. And uh, we ended up just getting under contract and closing. But yeah, I came from a broker and Eli did a lot of the finding of the deal. Okay, now is Eli in Louisville? So was that your he's boots a, on the ground guy or is that your broker? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's the boots on the ground partner. Okay. So when you're looking in this market, you're, you're going over some statistics and the reasons why you're looking in this Louisville market, where were you finding those numbers? Where are you finding those facts from? Cause I'm sure there's listeners on here saying, well, I'm always looking at other markets, but where do I get that information from? Yeah, that's a good question. So citydata.com is a good resource for sure. Um, so is the department of numbers and some of the other HUD sites for like building permits. Um, the local municipality site. But basically what I'm looking for is population growth. I'm looking for about a 20% increase from 2000 to 2019. I'm looking for job growth, which is typically, I'm looking for about 2% annualized. So year over year, I want it to be around 2% job growth because the national average is a little bit lower than that. And if I can beat the national average in job growth, that's going to be indicative of people moving to a city, more salaries being produced, more the economy thriving and people being able to pay for rent increases. So it's all pretty... Um, it's actually pretty common sense. It, it seems a little intimidating, some of the more metrics as we go down, but like median household income increasing about 30% from 2000 to 2019, just because people are making more money so they can pay for rent increases and the right. overall city is thriving. And then you have, you know, sale prices of homes and condos are those going up at least 40% from 20,000 from 2000 to 2019. And again, our house price is increasing, meaning more people can afford stuff. The overall economy is improving. And it just keep, keeps being stats like that. You look at absorption rate just to see where the cycle is. And uh, and yeah, there's a bunch of different little statistics, but citydata.com is a really good source and Department of Numbers is also a decent one as well. 
Okay. All right. And what are you, when you're looking for these properties, when you're talking to a broker and you're saying, Hey, I'm looking for a deal. Well, everyone and their brother's looking for a deal. You know, I, are you being more specific? Are you not being as generalized with these properties? I mean, what are you giving him that you want to see? Yeah. So I try to define my criteria pretty specifically and I'll do it based on the build year I'm looking for, the unit class I'm looking for, the amount of units I'm looking for, the purchase price I'm looking for, and then not only the city, but the submarket, because that typically shows people that you know, um, you know what you're talking about. And I'll even tell them a little bit about the cap rate range that I'm looking for, and I'll, and I'll try to put it with the cities. So I'm not gonna say, a lot of people have been trained like, I only buy 10% cap rates. And you're like, <laughs> dude, the, the market's like five to seven right now. You're just, you're, right. you're immediately like standing out that you don't know what you're talking about. So you wanna have the research there and be like, oh yeah, I'm looking at East Riverside, a submarket of Austin that's literally like, you know, not very big at all. It's very uh, granular. And I'm asking for a specific set of units. But not only that, am I clear with my criteria? I, I want to go to their personal website before I reach out and see if they have any listings that aren't on LoopNet, that aren't anywhere else other than their personal website. And usually you can download a financial package on their direct website. And from there, they can, number one, see that I've logged in on their website and downloaded a financial package, which is good. That makes me somewhat warmer to them. Right. Um, and then you I'm have also some credibility give, there. Yeah, you have some credibility that you've, you've taken the time to look at their stuff. Um, and then I'll also send them a little bit of a criteria on like, you know, what I like or don't like and why it doesn't fit my criteria. And that gives me the opportunity to refine it even more. So, hey, I like this. Uh, it's a 40 unit. I'm looking for that. It's in my price range. My price range is this, by the way. It's a 1970s build. That's all fantastic. But it's not in East Riverside. And that's the submarket that I look for. If you have any deals that fit my criteria more, I'd love to reach out like that kind of stuff. Instead of, right, right. like you said, I'm looking for multifamily, me and my everybody else in the whole country. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. We're just looking for a deal. Whatever you got, bring it to us. We'll evaluate it that it's really not niching down, so to speak. And when you guys want to set up this whole syndication, so again, a lot of people listening on here, they want to syndicate. There's a decent chunk to it. It's not like buying a small multifamily. Was it you or your partner that was setting up syndication uh, like with the attorneys, syndication attorneys, uh, getting documentation together, funding? I mean, how did that all look? Spread us out through those, those steps you did before closing on the property. Yeah, so syndication, it is a little bit of a lot to do, but the thing is, it's t it's handled by several team members, so it becomes chunked down into a, a fairly manageable task. Like, for example, the PPM, the subscription agreement, and the operating manual, like the, the three documents that you're going to need legally, those all get made by a, a, you know, a, a syndication attorney, and we use Bootstrap Legal, which is basically all AI-generated, so it's not as... Uh, it's not as expensive and it's quicker as well. So we were able to get stuff um, printed out pretty quickly. And that's, you know, it's, it's really, you know, you hand them off $8,000 or so, and then they make all the documents for you. And that's kind of, some people get really stressed out about the legal side of things, but you just have to hire the right professionals around you. And then as far as the, the actual cap rate and the structure, I mean, not the cap rate, the actual like structure of raising capital there is also pretty simple. You can make it as complicated as you want. And some people do, you know, very complicated waterfalls and, and hurdles in different locations. But we would just do a 70-30 split with an 8% preferred rate of return, which is pretty standard. Um, you know, again, first indication, didn't want to do a bunch of different uh, hurdles and things right. like that. I just want to keep it simple, right? So Complicated waterfall, that good stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like, why do that if, if, you're, if you're stressed out about it? Just do the... Make it simple, keep it simple, and um, and just you know keep take it one step at a time and chunk it out because it, you don't have to do everything. Right. So dumb that down for our listeners real quick. So when you said uh, the 70-30 split and the preferred returns, I want you to dumb that down for someone that has no idea what that means or sounds like. Please go right ahead. Yeah. So if I go into the grocery store and I buy a pie, 
You know, uh, I get 70, I get 30% of it and the investors get 70% of it, right? And we split, we split it like that. Now, like if I have an 8% preferred rate of return, I'm gonna give them the first eight bytes and then we're gonna split the, the rest of the pie 70-30. So whatever left after they've taken eight bytes of that pie, they get 70% of what's left and I get 30% of what's left. So that's what a preferred rate of return would be in a really simple situation. And, uh, and then, you know, on sale, then we just split the sale 70-30 clean and I don't do a pref on like sale. Um, okay, I, so I it's like preferred I, I don't, return I don't on cash flow. Yeah, exactly. So the pie analogy kind of breaks down there in a capital event, but the, uh, yeah, the, the capital event, like if I sell or refinance, there's no pref there. It's just a pref on the cash flow. Okay. So let's say you were to add some value refi to pull out some equity or all equity, so to speak. How does that look for an investor? Yeah. So if we're pulling out on a refi, we'll typically try to like, we'll keep them in until we sell it. Right. But we will return their capital um, as much as we can, as far as the 70, 30 split. Typically, if you're doing a refi, it's because you know, you're going to be able to return um, most, if not all of their capital, and that it's going to really benefit your cash on cash return. So I haven't done a refi yet. Um, but if, if I was to do one, that would be my thought process. And I would hopefully be able to return all of their capital if I was going to take that out and do it. And I would keep them in until the end of the term. And I believe that's what we have in our PPM at the moment. So if we were to do a refi, if that was ever to come up, then yeah, we would still keep them in the deal. I know some people cash them out and then cash their equity out as well. But um, I, I'd, I'd like to keep them in the deal and give them even more because they'll likely be inclined to keep investing with me if I, I absolutely just throw them say- away. They're yeah. going to be very happy investors and they're going to tell their friends and you're going to have more capital than you do deals when that's always a bad problem to have. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. So, yeah. So uh, bootstrap legal, that's who you guys said you used for all the documentation write-ups uh, with the attorneys there. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, how'd you find them? So you're, you're 21 years old. You're just going out, you're talking to attorneys. How do you land on these guys? Did you ever meet them face to face? Was it a recommendation? Did you read about them somewhere? So there's a ton of good syndication attorneys out there. Um, there's a guy named Mauricio in San Antonio. I forget his full name, but I mean, that's pretty publicly well known. If you get into like even bigger pockets or just a general real estate community, you should be able to start figuring out you have, um, who's the guy who does Grant Cardone's um, Reg A funds, uh, Gene Trowbridge. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you have like Gene Trowbridge, uh, who's like the big, you know, Kahuna kind of thing. And then you have Lisa Kim Taylor or Kim Lisa Taylor. I forget what, what order those names are in. Right. But yeah. She has, <laughs> yeah, she has a, another, she's well known as well. And she's another great option. And then you have like cheaper options that are more AI and less customized. And those are like bootstrap legal where a lot of that's being done by uh, kind of like a, a software where it's kind of filling out the forms instead of a person handwriting the whole thing and kind of customizing it. So it's got to save a lot comp- of money. Yeah, it saves, it saves a ton of money, right? That's why we did it because we didn't have a complicated structure. If we had like this crazy complicated thing with all these different hurdles and things, then potentially, you know, we have a unique situation. I'd want to go to a human. But if we're doing a very down the fairway kind of um, equity split in the whole process, then, we, then, you know, you can get away with doing the, the AI kind of software-based um, PPMs. Okay, so two questions for you on that then. First one being, I, I hear the prices between 20000 25000 typically for syndication attorneys to draw up these documents, how would you say the prices differ when you do these AI custom filled documents for the most part versus an actual syndication attorney? You're probably going to be somewhere from five to 10,000 um, oh, wow. with, okay. with that, which is a lot different. And you can get the person to do it on the lower end to, for 15. I've seen in some cases, so you can kind of get closer to the, to the 15 number on both cases, but, but yeah, the AI is definitely going to be cheaper. I think we were around 8,000. And I'm sure you use that on the 12 unit as well, instead of paying astronomical costs for that. You did syndicate the 12 unit, right? It wasn't a joint venture. It was a pseudo joint venture, but I, okay. I believe that it, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a kind of a, 
a more unique structure. I believe that it ended up just landing as a joint venture because we had a lot of active roles, um, but we were worried if we were going to be able to justify that. And I think that we just went ahead and just kept it as a JV. Okay, awesome. And for finally the SEC, for 506B, 506C, all that good stuff, does Bootstrap Legal do that for you or who was able to do that for you guys in that uh, 107 unit? Yeah, so they do the entire uh, process as far as the filing is concerned, yeah. That's great. And for those of you that don't really understand what we're blobbering about right now, <laughs> when you're doing a syndication, it's, it's, it's basically an equity for the most part. It's, you have to file with the uh, security exchange commission and you have to have accredited investors. And we'll get into that another day with the 506 uh, B for Bravo, C for Charlie, all that good stuff. Now being 21 years old, which is just, it blows my mind. And I love that because we're roughly the same age. I think it's the coolest thing, how, how much we both have accomplished at this age where did you learn about all this syndication? I mean, there's a lot of terms. There's a lot of things that need to be done. A lot of I's that need to be dotted and T's that need to be crossed in this. Where did you go and get all your education from? Was there someone you're able to ask questions for somewhere online? You really just grabbed a lot of this info from? Yeah. So I started out just self-educating like a madman, um, like all the time, pretty much. And then Mm -hmm. I ended up joining the Jake and Gino group, um, Jake and Gino wheelbarrow profits. And they're really yeah, they're good awesome. guys. They they typically don't teach syndication or they just recently started to, but they had a, an employee, Dylan Marma, who, who taught me quite a bit about syndication is a really awesome guy. He used to do them with Vinny Chopra um, before he started working with them. Vinny. So super qualified guy. Yeah, Vinny's a cool guy too. So they were like, he was, I think, 24 when I was talking to him. And he's just a young, total genius guy and told me a lot about syndication. And, and then from there, he kind of piqued my interest. He told me the basics. And then I just dug, dug into it because I realized like, hey, this is the gateway for me to get into these multifamily deals and not have to do like house hack until, you know, a certain time and then buy like a four unit, you know, and like take this really slow journey. I was like, hey, I can probably get one of these this year if I understand the syndication thing. And then from there, you know, you're so intrinsically motivated by that vision of your of like, hey, this can happen, this can happen. And then from there, you just, you know, I was I was literally waking up at like 4.30 doing the miracle morning, reading pretty much all throughout the day. And then, you know, getting mad at like 10 when I had to go to bed because I was enjoying it so much. And and that, that was just a really, really fun time. It is pretty addicting, isn't it? Just yeah, absorbing all this addicting. info. It's, it's pretty sweet. Now, do you have a long-term goal with investing with real estate? Is there somewhere you want to be? Do you have mile marker goals of where you want to be in a year? Or what's that look like for you? Yeah. So a lot of my goals um, at this point have shifted to a lot of more service-based goals, uh, you know, because for me, man, I've started to realize, and and I don't know, this may be the case for you as well, but like, I've realized that there's only really a certain amount of money that makes me um, happy. And there really typically is a a definite flat cap on top of that. And everything after that for me is just kind of excess. And I'm looking into ways to just serve more people and do more things um, for the benefit of others, because I'm starting to realize that when I look back on my life, I want to feel good about the amount of people that I helped and the, and the impression that I left on people rather. Yeah, exactly. Rather than some big bank account or some, you know, car or house that impresses people that I don't really like or know. Right. My mom and dad and my dad and my brother don't care what car I drive or where I live. Um, they care about the kind of, the kind of man that I am in my heart and the kind of way that I interact with people around me. So I'm just trying to, you know, skew most of my goals towards, you know, service and trying to be, you know, give back to people, you know, that kind of duty. You said it's so right and being so young, that's great too, because I was at that point where I was like, I want to make a bunch of money. I want to have like a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a Porsche, yeah. a big house, a second house, you know, just, and, and then you grow up and like, especially, you know, I just got married and I was like, what's the point? Like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I'll have two cars. I'll have the regular commuter car. Maybe I'll have a little fun car because I like, you know, vehicles. Maybe we'll have a summer camp for the family to stay at, but there's a point where it's like, when's it stop and for what, you know? Yeah. 
So that's good. And congratulations, by the way, on getting married. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. We, uh, we made it one day before everything got shut down. So if we, we got married one day later, I'd still be single. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to syndication, how are you analyzing these deals? What, what returns are you looking for as far as a cap rate, a cash and cash return, IRR, all that good stuff. Let's jump into the numbers a little bit and you can use one of your deals as an example, or you can just kind of fluff one up to give everyone an idea. Yeah. So the, the kind of the metrics that I look for is number one, I'm looking for debt coverage, um, debts, DSER. So debt service coverage ratio. Yep. Um, and that's what I do first. So the analyzer that I built is set up to where number one, the question I got to ask is, can I pay the bank? Is it even worth, you know, if I can't pay the bank, it's not, I can't pay myself. So I stop there and I don't answer the rest of the questions. So first I'm looking at the DSCR. Can I pay the bank? If my DSCR is above 1.25 on the analyzer, then I'll kind of go into the deeper analysis and start looking at some of the, you know, the return metrics like IRR. And for that, I honestly want to be above 15% if I possibly can. And I'd like my equity multiple to be around 2.0 so that I can say that I'm doubling someone's money um, in the whole period. And then for as far as average annual return, I'm not as, as stringent on that because I've noticed that it's somewhat of a skewed metric in the sense that the sale year definitely pumps up the, the metric. And it is a benefit of real estate that we do get such large sales and that that does kind of help um, annualize everything. But uh, as far as the average annual return, somewhere around 20% to me is a good metric, but I, I don't, I'm not like live or die by the, the AAR. I, I feel like it can be, you know, kind of skewed. And, and how are you calculating that number where you're getting the 20% return there? How does that look? So it's just basically the average of all the five years. So if I have like a five, a five, a five, and then sale years like 149, then it's just those added up and divided by the number of years. Okay, that's great. And the IRR, you said you're looking for 15% on that? Yeah, somewhere around there. Okay, do you, I, I know it's kind of hard to explain without showing on a spreadsheet, but do you want to give us a quick synopsis of what an IRR is? Because everyone's familiar with the cap rate, the cash on cash, but when they start to hear debt service coverage ratio, we're like talking about IRR. They're like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll give it my best shot, man. Um, so, yeah, basically, <laughs> so basically what IRR is, it's trying to take into account that there's a certain drag on cash. So like if I have $15 today, it's not worth $15 in the future. So it's taking into account that sort of like drag or lag on the money over time. If that's a decent, I feel like that's, that's an averagely yeah. good way to put it, but yeah. Like I said, it'll be hard without a spreadsheet to actually show where the money's going and how it's affecting. Um, okay. Yeah. And these deals that you're finding, the 107 unit and the 12 unit, how are you finding them? Are they on market, they off market? And is it the broker relationship that you're really getting them from? Yeah, so for me, they're mostly off market. They both have been so far. I'm, I'm not opposed to buying on market deals, but they, you know, not ones on like LoopNet necessarily that have been picked through, but sometimes like, especially in the Austin market, since it's so competitive, they'll go to market like pretty early, even though they're decent deals. And then they'll just have a bidding war, which then makes them not good deals. But if I was to win one of those bidding wars at a good price, I'd be willing to buy on market. But um, the off market deals is what I've been doing uh, at the, at the, in the interim, because, you know, buying in Louisville and Atlanta is not quite, quite a little bit outside of Atlanta and Austell, not quite as con, uh, competitive as Austin, but basically the broker relationships come down to how well you are, how well you keep track of your information on a spreadsheet as to, you know, what this guy's name is and if he has a kid and if his kid plays soccer and if they had a game last weekend, that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to keep track of that pretty um, intensely on spreadsheets and, and talk about like last contact dates and what we talked about so that when I do send my biweekly email uh, once every other week, um, and, and I'll say something along the lines of, Hey, I was Sally soccer game last, uh, last week. I hope she had a good time. By the way, if you have any deals fitting my criteria, I'd love to reach out and I'll get back to you in 48 hours. If you send me anything, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. 
instead of the, you know, lackadaisical, what everyone else does, which is I'm looking for multifamily. And then your follow-up is, Hey, I'm looking for multifamily. You got anything yet? Like that kind of stuff. Uh, they see so much of that. And I know that. So I, I just try to stick out as much as I can by kind of doing too much so that they're like, who is this guy? And get out of my inbox. I either got to respond right. to this guy or block him. And that's kind of what, that's kind of my mindset. Yep. And so let's say you're, you're someone that's been doing small multifamilies for 10 years now, you know, that round really well. And you're like, all right, I think it's time that I need to scale up a little quicker and go into syndication. I want to start having some relationship with some brokers. How do you reach out to these brokers to build these relationships and where do you know to find them? Yeah. So I touched on a little bit as far as like going to their website. I think that's a, 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 and getting their deals and underwriting a little bit of it and sending that first email as a good intro. But where you find that is typically like LoopNet has really bad deals on it, but almost every broker in America has a profile on LoopNet. So what you can do is you can go to the broker directory on LoopNet. So not finding deals on LoopNet, but you go to broker direct, LoopNet slash broker directory. And uh, if you Google that, you'll find an ability to search for brokers in your market based on asset class. And you can go and filter for multifamily and you'll get a huge list of like 36 pages. And you just go through there, you see who specializes in multifamily. You click on their profile and in their profile on the left side, it will say links and they'll be blue. You can't miss them and they'll say their, you know, like their company website name and you click on that. And from there, you can start to get number one, more information on their contact info to reach out to them if they don't even have deals on their website. But ideally, they have deals on their website where you can go and do a brief underwriting um, and give them some feedback as far like actual analyst, actual like analysis feedback. So you're not just saying generally that you're looking uh, for multifamily. Okay, that's good. Yeah. And for you yourself, what's a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So right now I'm trying to start the mentorship program and kind of give back. So a lot of it has been the social media content and also hiring this team. So basically I'm building a team and kind of stepping out because being on social media every day is pretty stressful. So I have social media coordinators now do all the posting and DMS and comments and things like that. And we're doing a webinar every week on Tuesday. That's, you know, kind of a process to set up and get people to. Um, and then also I have a podcast that releases Mondays and Fridays. And then I try to do as many free calls with people as I can. So from the webinar, we'll get people signed up for free calls, the podcast as well. And I just try to have a 30 minute strategy session. So my day like with Calendly is pretty much booked like every 15 minutes. Fills up pretty up quick. Some... Yeah, it fills up real fast. And uh, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of stressful. And I'm maybe trying to see if I can, you know, move to a different way of doing that. Cause I don't see that being sustainable. But like today I had calls from like probably 8:30 AM up to basically 5:45, And then I jumped on this podcast and, uh, wow. And it's, it, it, I got to maybe find a different way of doing it. Cause this is like the second week of, of trying the free call thing. And it's been, it's been, it's been warmly receptive, which is awesome. Uh, but it's also a lot of, a lot of effort to, to go out there and, and do them. Yeah, no, I definitely hear you for the amount of time you're spending with all real estate related activities. Are there any real estate specific tools that you find to be super helpful for your day to day? I know you said you use calendarly, uh, calendarly to schedule things, whatnot, but what else you got that you're using that's really helpful? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think that LinkedIn events are underrated right now. Um, I don't know if that's like a super huge tool or maybe it's not, but for me, like the webinar that we've gotten, uh, mm -hmm. we've, we've literally doubled in like our attendance since using LinkedIn events and being able to go through our entire connections and send them the event and it'll be in their notifications as accept or ignore. And I don't want to give the information all the way because what's happened with the DMs on LinkedIn is they've gotten saturated and now they don't work. So I'm oh, kind yeah. of hoping, yeah, oh yeah, that's right. They're all sales pitches and they're robots, which sucks. But right now, LinkedIn events is kind of that next thing that I hope doesn't get saturated. But we went from like, 
you know, we were at like 40 signups a day before, which was like almost 100 down from last week. And we were like, what happened? Um, and we didn't do LinkedIn events. So we did them the one day before the webinar. And we ended up jumping up to like 83. So we doubled our thing just from doing LinkedIn events. And, and, the, and the attendance rate from LinkedIn seems to be much higher than through email and through other things. So if you're trying to put on some sort of a webinar or a meetup, uh, definitely using LinkedIn events is has been huge for, for my business. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you're saying about the uh, LinkedIn DMs, how they're all like robotic or saturated. I'm like, oh my goodness. Every day I just get notification after notification for people to try to come in and I'm like, uh, I'm good. Like, I don't, I don't want your Bitcoin. I don't want your cryptocurrency. <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. Those, when they first came out though, people were like exponentially growing their business by reaching out there because they had such a high response rate. But I literally, like you said, it's, it's like that. And they have the like meetalfred.com where I don't want to plug the thing too much because people will go and use it. But basically yeah. <laughs> what happens is it'll send you a, it'll send you DMS. Like they can set the time so you can have like six of them. And over the six days, I'll get six DMS from some guy and they're so clearly robotic. And they're asking me, like you said, Bitcoin. And I'm like, dude, I'm not interested, man. Please leave me alone. Yeah. The returns are so much better than, you know, real estate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, that's great. I love everything you shared with us so far. Uh, anything you want to talk touch on before we switch into another section here? Um, no, I, I'm ready to go if you are. Okay, awesome. So uh, we're going to go to a section called the curious cues. I'm going to throw some questions at you and you're just going to give me your answers. Uh, first question, favorite podcast you like listening to? Uh, favorite podcast? I like Michael Blanc's quite a bit, to be honest. And if I can yeah, shamelessly good. plug my own, the Own Your Time podcast is, is pretty good too. <laughs> shamelessly but, but, throw it in there. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, going to toss that one in there. But you know, multi, uh, Michael Blanc's is, is one of my favorites as well. I think he does a great job. Yeah, he does. And I actually really enjoyed his book, uh, The Green One, Green Lime Color. Forgot the name of it, something with apartment buildings. Uh, that was like the first syndication book I read. And that really was like the eye opener for me. And uh, I enjoyed that one a lot. Favorite book you enjoy reading? favorite book um uh this is maybe a, a little bit orthodox but uh, probably the bible right i mean i don't know is it is it cool is it cool to say that anymore I oh heck like yeah not. man but yeah definitely that the bible okay. would probably be the number one read there you go awesome it's got principles for everything in it let me tell you um biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome definitely the age and getting people to believe in me yeah. and take me seriously I knew it's, you were going to uh, say that one. <laughs> yeah, but it's been like a, a blessing because now I feel like I understand people a little bit more because I learned I baptized by fire with that thing, man. You're, you're going in there and you're just like, hey, I'm Kyle. And everyone's like, dude, get out of here. Like, you know, and immediately. So you got to be like, okay, how do I dress? How do I stand? What are the, what's the lingo? That's so huge yep. in real estate. If you're using the wrong lingo, then you're immediately like you stick out like a sore thumb and you don't know it until you know it, which is the embarrassing thing, you know, because you, you oh, learn yeah. six months later what you should have been saying. And you're like, oh, wow, face bomb. Like, I can't even believe that I used the wrong words for six months. But but yeah, learning the lingo is huge. And, and that definitely helps a lot, too. Yeah, I mean, going with the whole age thing, it can sometimes be an advantage because you, you'll never tell someone your age. You'll go about do everything and then somehow it'll come up like, oh, you know, what year did you graduate or something like that? And you tell them. And they're like, you're only what? And they're like, man, if I started at your age, you know, I'd be so much more successful. Like you're going to be, you know, like I always think about how, you know, you, myself, you know, what we'll be doing when we're 30 years old, just because a lot of people started this stuff when they were 30, 40 years old, not when they were 20, 21, 22. So I think that's sweet. And, you know, hats off to you, man. Favorite part in investing in real estate. Probably just the ability to show people a new avenue that they haven't seen before for their life as far as money is concerned. 
Because typically people are like, I can get what tax benefits from real estate? I can make how much money on my money? This is all passive. Like that kind of conversation when you have with someone who's a limited partner who genuinely hasn't been experienced multifamily and they're in the stock market and they really just don't have any control of their finances and they're like, man, I'm making a lot of money, but it's going to the government and it's going to bad investments or it's going to some weird lifestyle thing that I don't need. And then you're able to show them like, hey, multifamily can free your whole family up for generations if you just do it right. And then you get to show them how to do it right. That's that's probably my favorite part. Yeah. Let me tell you the depreciation tax benefit, that thing, the first day I ever learned about that a few years ago, I think blows my mind of how much money that can save you a year. And if it turns negative, it can roll into the next year, take up some of your W2 income. So that's pretty sweet. Uh, favorite non-real estate related hobbies. What are you doing in your free time? My free time right now is I am a big backpacker. So I like to go out and backpack for several days. That's been something that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Um, that, and then I still like run quite a bit. Um, I training for a marathon right now. I ran a half marathon in February and in December, and I think I, I was going to run one, but you know, COVID. So whenever those open up again, I'll probably be running one, um, this year. Okay, sweet. And, uh, newbie advice. So advice you to give someone that's looking to get started or just they're going at it now, but they want to scale a lot quicker. I would say number one, just start to really like do some personal work. Number one, because even if you do become successful in real estate, like for me, I don't think that I was fully developed as a person when I first started to be successful uh, monetarily. And I made some decisions that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have made now looking back. Right. So starting to understand your real principles and values and things that aren't going to change about you as you as your life changes around you you need to have some things that are fixed in the form of principles that you believe in and that you stand by because otherwise when things change rapidly in your external environment you can kind of get swept away with the noise and oftentimes the general consensus and noise on topics is typically very very wrong and you need to take the time to consider how you feel personally about every kind of as major aspect and major decision in your life um, and that's something that i you know, really, really gotten into and, and it's changed my life. So I would say non-real estate tip there, definitely start to look a little bit internally before you start going out and trying to, you know, conquer the whole real estate world. Right. It's working on yourself first before you get into it. So uh, that's really good. Kyle, ooh, start dropping websites, start dropping podcasts, start dropping Instagram where people hear about you more. Yeah. So I'll try to give one, uh, one directions to make it simple. If you text, uh, guide 2020, which is, you know, G U I D E 2020, no spaces to four, seven, four, seven, four, seven, you should get a link sent to your, your phone. That'll give you a free download to the resources guide I have for all new investors. And it literally is every single, um, kind of resource you could want books, podcast, and then some study questions at the end of each little uh, section because I break real estate into three parts and then have books and podcasts for each like development stage and then questions for each one too. So if you're interested in that, uh, just text uh, guide 2020 to 474747. So that's 47 three times. So Kyle, before you go, tell us a little about the ebook you've got, Newbie Investor Guide. What's going on with that? Where can people get that as well? Yeah. So that text number should send you to that ebook. Um, okay. and hopefully that'll be a good situation. So yeah, hopefully just trying to keep it simple. Cause I've noticed when I go on podcasts and give everybody a bunch of commands, every, you know, a confused like mind takes no action <laughs> is kind of, I think the, the quote there. So just trying to give you everybody one, one thing to think about. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kyle, for coming on the show this evening. I know you had, like you said, a super busy day and uh, I think people were able to take away a lot of value added to the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, man. You asked some great questions and I had a lot of fun. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
We hope you took something away from today's episode. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at Dante Belmonte. See you next time.